Hey, this is Scott. Thanks for checking out the podcast of Grace Fellowship Church. Hope it's encouraging for you and helps you take your next steps in your faith journey. Enjoy. The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw, How long, O Lord, will I call for help, and you not hear? I cry out to you violence, yet you do not save. Why, not, why do you make me see inequity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Look among the nations. Observe, be astonished, wonder, because I'm doing something in your days. Some, you would not believe it if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to besiege dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers are laughing, are laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble, rubble to capture it. Then they sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty, they whose strength is their God. And you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One, will not, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their net, and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. God, thank you for your word that instructs us, that guides us, that directs us. God, this, uh, this evening, this weekend, as we seek to understand it, God, would you activate it in our hearts and our minds? Would you illuminate its truth deep in our souls? Would you knock the crust off and show us, Lord, how we can understand it, internalize it? Uh, God, ultimately, that our hearts would be transformed as we consider your faithfulness and some hard questions in life. Holy Spirit, we ask that you'd be present here to bless in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Thank you, team. Sure appreciate having everyone here. My name's Scott, the lead pastor. We're blessed to have the, the family of God back together again. It's good. It's a good thing. Have you ever noticed that there's some questions in life that are kind of hard to answer? Right? Like, why do they say the alarm clock goes off when it really is turning on? 
Like that drives me crazy. How about why do you park on a driveway and drive on a parkway? Uh, that drives me nuts as well. Why do they say, hey, I've slept like a baby when you've slept? When in reality, if you've had a baby, you know that babies don't sleep more than two hours at a time. That's, that's not the way that it really, really works. Uh, the one that I really want to know is, God, why did you create mosquitoes? What good did they possibly do? What were they created for? Right? If you, if another one, how about this? If you throw a cat out of the moving car, is that called kitty litter? I guess at that point it's an alley cat or maybe a catastrophe. These are some difficult questions in life. If you have a Bible, we're in the book of Habakkuk. I invite you to open it. It's a short little book, only three chapters long. Maybe you didn't even know it was a part of that, but part of the Bible. But in reality, it's a very applicable book for us. It's applicable because Habakkuk has some hard questions, much, much harder than those silly ones I just asked. The driving question behind the book of Habakkuk is this. Why? Why, God? Why have you let these things happen? Why do you seem absent? Why don't you fix the problems that I see in the world? When I cry out, why does it seem like you are silent? And it can leave us feeling frustrated. It left Habakkuk feeling frustrated, felt out of alignment. The world felt out of balance when God doesn't respond the way that we want to. In many ways, we can ask, God, why is this happening? This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem fair. You ever said that to God? You ever asked him that? God, it doesn't seem fair. Why is this happening? It's probably a question that we all have asked as well. Now, Habakkuk is one of the 12 minor prophets. You know what the difference is between a major and a minor prophet? Major prophet, folks like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, I mean, their books were really, really long, and the minor prophets were just really, really short. That doesn't make them any more or less, doesn't make them any less important. Habakkuk was writing about 600 years before Christ, give or take a couple years. At this point in time, it was a, a period when God's people had become very, very corrupt, there was a ton of violence. There was all sorts of injustice. There was a lot of people. People were ignoring God. It's not that there weren't good people. It's that the good people that were around weren't really doing anything about the evil that was happening to them and that they saw. They weren't doing much to fix it. And so last week, we looked at the first four verses that we just read. It was as if Habakkuk was picking up a phone line to the radio show of God and saying, I'm going to tell you everything wrong that I see. And he just went, ah, I am so frustrated with everything that I see. There's corruption and there's evil and there's violence. God, how long? How long am I going to call out to you? Why won't you respond to me? Why don't you listen? You ever asked that of God? You ever called that out? God, I need help. You said you'd help. You said you'd answer our prayers, but I prayed for help, and you didn't. <laughs> Why? Why? I, I, praying, when I pray, nothing happens. Maybe some of you have felt that way. I have. And so you think, well, maybe I just need to pray like the right kind of thing. So I'm going to pray according to like what God says is good, according to his will. And if I just pray that way, then it's got to happen. So you try that and God didn't do it. And then you think, maybe if I just continue praying in faith, God will eventually do it. And then you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray and he doesn't seem to do anything about it. And you start to ask the question, God, do you even care? Are you listening? Are you interested in my situation? And then you look at someone else, and they pray, like it happens right away, it happens instantly, and you're like, what gives? 
Why? Why is that the case? God, why is it when I'm trying to raise my kids according to like your principles for parenting, like my kids just don't seem to end up right? But then I look at this guy who's like this lousy dad and he doesn't even take his kids to church and his kids turned out just fine. Why is that, God? Why? Why is it when I try to honor you financially by giving to the kingdom of God? You know, I can't seem to get ahead financially, but my neighbor who's a complete atheist who doesn't do any of that, he just always seems to have the nicest car and the nicest stuff. Why? Why is that, God? How, how come... How come I've got all these headaches that won't go away? I'm still battling depression. This person I love is still dealing with this physical issue. God, it seems like you could be doing something, and I call out to you, and yet you're not doing anything. Why are you not listening? That's exactly the kind of question that Habakkuk was asking of God. And some of us might think, well, maybe Habakkuk just didn't have enough faith. If he had more faith, he would not have asked questions like that. Wrong. (laughs) Wrong. The reason God chose to speak through Habakkuk to these Jewish people called Judah was because, in fact, he did have a lot of faith. He did have a lot of faith. The entire book of Habakkuk We're not seeing a man whose faith was faltering. We're seeing someone whose faith was perplexed. And he asked God questions and he was frustrated. And so for you and I, as we look at that, we see some modeling about how we can go through these times that are challenging and we can do what Habakkuk did and that is be very real about how we feel. We might feel sheepish about going to God with our agonies and with our complaints, but for Habakkuk, he was real with how he felt, and it shows us that we can be real with how we feel as well. And so Habakkuk, in the first four verses, he picks up the phone, and he calls to God, and he says, what I see is so frustrating. And when we look at the world around us, it's not hard to echo his complaints But what's so amazing in this prophecy that God gives to Habakkuk is that God turns around and he actually responds. And he answers the complaint of Habakkuk. How did God answer his questions? Well, let me tell you that Habakkuk didn't like the answer, and we probably won't either. In verse 5, this is what he says. God answers him. Look at the nations, Habakkuk. Look at the nations and watch. Be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. What you're going to see unfold, Habakkuk, what's going to happen after this point, if I tried to communicate it to you, you wouldn't even believe it. Habakkuk, pick up your eyes. Pick up your eyes right now. Broaden your perspective. I'm going to do something that's going to floor you. And right about now, he's probably saying, this sounds fantastic because you know what? I know my history. I know the history of Israel. And I remember what God did at very various turning points in our history. When things looked bad and bleak, when the nation of Israel was stuck alongside the Red Sea and the hordes of Egyptian soldiers were barreling down on them, they said, there's no way we can get out of this. And we know that Moses raised his staff God parted the seas. The nation walked through the dry land. And they're like, hey, that's a whale. Look at that, a sea turtle. I love sea turtles. They're walking through there, and then the the ocean collapses and kills their enemies. And and Habakkuk is probably saying, I know the God that does that kind of thing. Sign me up. I can't wait to see what God is going to do at this point in time. And this is what God says. Verse 6. 
He says, I am raising up the Babylonians. Your Bibles might say the Chaldeans, same group of people. That ruthless, impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwellings not their own. Like record scratch. Like, wait a minute. The Babylonians? Seriously. You got to be kidding me. They're not the good guys. They're the bad guys. They're the enemies. Why would you do that, God? These aren't kind. These aren't benevolent people. They destroy. They murder. They slaughter innocent people. And God goes on to say this in verse 7. He says, they are feared. They are dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Even God says this. Even God says they're horrible people. They're bad. They're awful. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let them conquer you. That was God's reply. You're calling out for all of the violence, for all the evil you see in your own country. My response, Habakkuk, is, is justice. Is justice. I'm going to apply that. The Babylonians would be the hand of God to punish the nation of Israel. God goes on to describe them. He says, their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swooping to devour. They come intent on violence. Their hordes advance like the desert wind. You can't stop it. You can't hide from it. They gather prisoners like sand. There's no resistance that they can't overcome. They mock kings and they scoff at rulers. Even your most fortified cities, the things that you would say, we can hide behind this. We have smart enough people. We've got great warriors. Take a look at our walls. They're really tall. They're really thick. They're not going to be overcome this. He says they laugh at your fortified cities. They build up earthen ramps. They capture them. They sweep past like the wind and go on. They're guilty people whose own strength is in their God. Another translation translates that last verse this way. Then they will sweep through like the wind and they will pass on, but they will be held guilty whose strength is their God. So Habakkuk says this. He says, I'm sick of it, God. Everything I see around me, it's driving me crazy. And God says, you know what? I'm sick of it too. I see it. I agree with you. Your country, Judah, it's wicked. They're out of control. I'm going to do something about it. So what am I going to do? How about this? How about justice? I'm going to punish the whole nation for their sin. And here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to use your enemy to do that. And we would hear that and we would think, so hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Some of you might be thinking, is God doing evil here? Is he like inciting the Babylonians to do something evil No, because in fact, the Babylonians already wanted to attack. It's their nature. And up to this point, God had protected them. God had supernaturally defended the nation. He's been protecting them, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting, and he's been waiting for his people to repent and to call on him. And he would send prophet after prophet after prophet saying, hey, wake up. It's time to change. But the people ignored them, and he would do amazing things. He would consume the altar on top of Mount Carmel. He would cause the, 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 the rain to stop and the rain to come. There would be miracle after miracle, and they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't repent. And so now God is going to lift his hand of protection, and he's going to send the Babylonians. They're coming. And obviously, this was 
pretty distressing to Habakkuk. You could imagine why. This would be like us finding out that ISIS continue to grow in power and grow in power, and they're taking over country after country. They're, they're horrible. They just have violence, and they oppress, and there's nothing just about them, and they're arrogant, and, they're, and they just keep, and then they finally take over, and they, they, they take over Canada, they take over Mexico, and they're getting ready to pounce. And God says, guess what? I'm going to use them to conquer and bring judgment. But listen how God starts out his response to Habakkuk. This is what he says. I want you to look to the nations. Look to the nations. In other words, the first thing that we have to do when we go through a season where it seems like God is silent, where we don't understand what he's doing, is we have to pick up our eyes. We have to pick up our eyes and look from what's right in front of us to what God is doing abroad. We have to gain some perspective. I love to go backpacking. I don't get to do it enough, but when you go backpacking, you've got like this 50-pound pack on you, and you're hiking, especially when you hike in the Appalachian Mountains, mind you. There's just these small boulders and rocks everywhere you go, and so you spend most of your time with your eyes right in front of you, just trying not to twist your ankle, right? And you're walking, and you're walking, and you're walking, and you forget that there's something beyond what's right in front of you, and you're like, I'm thirsty, and I don't know where the path goes, and and when am I going to be off this mountain? And then all of a sudden, you realize, I need to pick up my eyes, and I need to look around me, and you're like, wow, I'm on a a ridge, and there's there's an eagle flying right next to me. Look at all the water down there. I'm about ready. I'm going to go down into the water. Eventually, there's the campground down there. That's where we're going to be. But when we get caught in our own little space, all we see is right in front of us. And God is saying to Habakkuk, lift up your eyes. Pick up your eyes, Habakkuk, because there's something at a a bigger scale going on than you can even begin to comprehend. If I were to tell you, you couldn't even understand it. Habakkuk, you need to know that what you see as this problem in your life, that I'm going to step in and I'm going to take action on a global scale to deal with it. And I am so mighty and I am so powerful that I can even work through your most evil enemy to bring about my purposes. Because here's what God saw. He saw a people that he loved, that he wanted to be in community with. They were acting in disobedience and rebellion against him. And he wanted to draw them back, to correct them, to bring them back to relationship And it was going to take something massive in order to fix his people. So God replies to Habakkuk, pick up your eyes. Pick up your eyes, Habakkuk. Look, gain some perspective. This is what he goes on to say at the end of that segment. He says, they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But these people that have done wrong says they will be held guilty whose strength is their God. In other words, I'm strong enough to work through your enemies, but I'm also going to deal with the treachery of the Babylonians as well. There's going to be justice for them. How was he going to do this? What we don't know is that God sees beyond what we just see, and he sees an entire picture One of the things I love to do as a hobby is I've been into uh, building drones and model aircraft for over 10 years. 
uh, something specially I specialize in called FPV. It stands for first-person view. So I would build a drone or a model aircraft, and it would have a little video camera on it, and I have a set of goggles I put on my head, and as I fly around, I can see from a totally different perspective. I see things like a bird sees things, and I can see things that I normally wouldn't see if it was right in front of me. I can see those things that occur out there, and God is saying, look, I have that first person, that bird's eye view, and what you see as just a bend, and you don't understand what's happening, I see it all unfolding in one fell swoop. In one act of knowing, God sees it all. How does that unfold? Well, the glory is we have the Old Testament already written, and we can see how God resolved that. Two years ago, we went through a series in the book of Daniel called Thriving in Babylon. And it tells the story of some men who learned to thrive in a challenging environment, whose faith remains strong. And that's a powerful lesson, but there's also a sub, kind of a sub-narrative that happens throughout that, and that's how God deals with the impetuous people that are the Babylonians. And he takes this proud and arrogant person, this king named Nebuchadnezzar, and he deals with his pride. This is what this is what uh, the story tells us, how God resolved this whole thing. See, Nebuchadnezzar has tremendous amount of pride. He would stand on top of his palace and look at all that he created. And this is what he said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 30. This is how God resolves it. This is how God sees them pass, come and pass like the wind. He says, the king reflected, this is Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who conquered Judah eventually, the one who came and, and, and had God's judgment against the Israelites, says the king reflected and said, is this not Babylon the great, which I myself has built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? See, he had thought that it was he that was sovereign and he that was in charge and in control. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be like the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes." And so he's driven from the kingdom. He's out in the field on hands and knees eating grass and weeds. His hair grows and becomes like feathers. His fingers become like claws. This person who was the most powerful person in the world is now someone that as mothers would pass by, they would point at this deranged madman in the, in the pasture and say, that used to be the king. Until one day his senses come to him and he lifts his eyes to heaven and he calls on the name of God. Not only is God able to sovereignly work to use this enemy nation to carry out his justice and his discipline on his people. Not only is he able to lift up this king but tear him down. And then as soon as he lifted his eyes to heaven, God said, I'm going to restore you to your throne. And then what follows in Daniel chapter 4 is Nebuchadnezzar, this most evil, heinous person, erupts from his heart into the song of praise, declaring that God is the only true God, everlasting God, worshiping him. And I'm, I'm somewhat convinced that Nebuchadnezzar became a God follower and that we might even see him in heaven someday. 
The problem is Nebuchadnezzar had learned humility that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble, that God could tear him down and pull him back up. The problem was this. Nebuchadnezzar learned that, but his son didn't. His son becomes king, and he has this party and says, let everyone see how great and mighty I am. And these articles of gold and silver that I took from the Israelites out of their temple and desecrated them, I'm going to show them to everyone. I'm going to have a party in my pad and show everyone all my cool stuff. He shows off these things. He desecrated God's temple. That night, God draws judgment on him. And the Babylonian kingdom was taken out by the Persians, the Medes and the Persians. I don't imagine Habakkuk could have even begun to think that's how God was going to resolve the situation. Can you imagine Habakkuk, this king that you couldn't get near? I'm going to bring low. He's going to call on my name and he's going to become a God worshiper. And then I'm going to wipe out the whole nation. But I'm going to preserve a remnant, and that remnant will restart the nation. And through that remnant, because the issue of wickedness is so deep and so strong, it's not, going to, it's not just one little uh, you know, human prophet with some neat little things that's going to fix the heart of people. I've got to send something so much more intense. I've got to send my only son to marry perfectly my love and my justice in one fell swoop. Because if it was just my justice, it would consume you, and you could never stand under that. And if it was just my love, then my holiness is not preserved. So I'm going to send my son, and my plan that's bigger than you could even possibly understand is going to fix not what's just right in front of you, but it's going to fix the condition of the human heart. Habakkuk, you can't begin to understand that. Habakkuk, you've got to lift your eyes. Habakkuk, you've got to understand that my perspective is not just right here, but it's eternal and core to who we are as Christians is this belief that our existence, our existence doesn't end right here, but there's an eternity at play. So when we lift our eyes, we say, God, what I'm doing right here is hard, but I trust in you, and I trust in your character. And when I lift my eyes, I know that you have that eagle's eye view, that first-person perspective, that, that, that you see it all, and that you're making all things new, and that I can trust in you. Isaiah 55 says this, says, for my thoughts, says the Lord, are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. And yet we go through the challenges that we go through and we say, God, why won't you fix it? You need to do it my way. And I want it today. And God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, as high as the heavens are as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And God judges and God sees and what God sees happen in the Israelites, what God sees happen with the Babylonians, he's gonna hold them to an account. And so from that, Habakkuk then speaks plainly before God again. And he says this in verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, another translation here says, we will never die. I think that's the right translation. We will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. It's really fascinating what Habakkuk responds to God's revelation to him. 
Habakkuk makes some bold statements. He steps in and he calls him Lord. Lord is a declaration of sovereignty. He's in charge. There's no one that's over him. He is the highest authority. He rules even the most evil of leaders and nations. And he is advancing things to his purposes. And even those who live in defiance of him are subject to his purposes. He calls him my God. In other words, he's not an impersonal force, but he's a personal father who loves him and cares about him, that he can have a relationship with. He calls him holy. To be holy means to be set apart, totally unlike any other. In other words, God, you are morally pure and upright. There's nothing wrong in you. You're not twisted. You don't do wrong things. And so when we look at the world around us and when we see what we think might be a projection of God, it's not a projection of God. It's a rejection of him. It's not his, his twistedness being projected. It's people rejecting his goodness. So he comes to this correct understanding about who God is, but sometimes it's our correct understanding with God that then causes us to chafe in the circumstances that we find ourselves in. God, I believe you're sovereign. I believe that you're here with me. I believe that you love me. I believe that you're never gonna leave me nor forsake me. If I just believed that you were absent and that you were indifferent, this whole thing would be easier to stomach. But because I believe those things are true, because I believe you're here, and because I believe you love me, then why are these things happening? I think it's this belief in God that fuels Habakkuk's second complaint. He opens his mouth again. Verse 13, he says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up more righteous than themselves? God, why are you allowing those who are morally more egregious dominate over those who are morally more upright? Why, God? Why? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like creatures that have no ruler. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks. The Na- Babylonians do this. Treat, treat people like they're pieces of meat. He gathers them up in his dragnet, just indiscriminately just kills and maims. So he rejoices and he's glad. He sacrifices to his net and he burns incense to his dragnet. For by his net he lives in luxury and enjoys the choicest of food. Is he to keep on emptying his net, destroying nations without mercy? Why, God? Why? Why do we see this? I will stand at my watch, Habakkuk says. I will stand at my watch and I will station myself on my ramparts and I will look to see what God will say to me and what answer I will give, I am to give to this complaint. So he says, God, there it is, there it is. I've given you my peace of mind. I've given you what I thought. I trust in you but I don't understand what you're doing. I'm just waiting on you, God. Just waiting. And God says, I've listened to you. I'm gonna do something that you can't even understand. But the answer that God gave Habakkuk was not neat and tidy, was it? It wasn't wrapped up in a nice little bow. Because while we know what happened with the Babylonians, he didn't. Now, did any of you grow up watching sitcoms? What kind of sitcoms did you watch? Friends. Friends? I like, like Brady Bunch, you know. Um, I, I grew up watching Home Improvement with T- Tim Allen, right? Or like Full House. That's what I grew up watching. And how do those things usually progress? What are they 
like? Well, it's usually like this. There's a little bit of humor. There's some tension. There's some plot line that develops. And to make it interesting, you know, they add some of those plot line twists in there. But then within 30 minutes, you know everything's going to work out. The problem's going to be solved. At the end of Full House, the music starts playing. And Deej Tanner and Danny Tanner come together for their, you know, resolve the tension moment. And everything is tied up in this neat, nifty little bow. And a lot of people like sitcom sermons, right? A little bit of humor, a little bit of tension, make it interesting, tell a nice story that makes us cry every once in a while. At the end of the 30 minutes, when everything's neatly tied, play some nice music and we'll feel good about things and go on with our lives. Well, you don't get that kind of message from Habakkuk, do we? It's the opposite. It's a whole lot more like real life. With Habakkuk, you get all of the attention, you get all of the drama, But you also get a lot of unanswered questions and not always a happy ending. And some of you right now, you're in a season of doubt. You know where this is, don't you? This is Habakkuk chapter 1 that you're living in the middle of. Just like Habakkuk, you don't know what to believe in. You don't know what God is doing. And too many people walk away from God in chapter 1. In chapter 1, it's all about wondering, God, where are you? I can't see you. And that wondering can be an important part of your faith journey. And that's where Habakkuk was. He says, God, I don't understand. He's perplexed. And God responds to him. But what God said was not what Habakkuk wanted to hear. Habakkuk, I'm going to use the Babylonians to punish your people. And you're kind of bad, but they're a lot worse. But I'm going to use them to destroy you. And Habakkuk would say, man, that's not fair. Where are you, God, in the middle of this? I don't understand. So here's the big question. What do you do when you don't understand what God is doing? And we're not sure what you would what you should believe. What do you do when you don't understand what God is doing and you're not sure what you should believe? You want to believe, but you have a ton of questions. Can you still be a deeply committed believer even when you have some doubts, even when you have those questions? I put the answer to this in the app as well as on the screen. I think it's important. A deeply committed believer can A deeply committed believer can express simultaneously having questions and having faith. You can be a deeply committed, faithful believer and still express questions and still have faith. I'll give you an example from the Bible, kind of as we round third base here. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, Jesus is in his ministry You can take a look at it if you want, but it's about a a father who has this son, and the father's son is possessed by this evil spirit, and he comes to Jesus, and he says, Jesus, can you do anything about this? My son has been oppressed by this. Lots of people have tried to fix it, and Jesus basically says this. He says, hey, I'm God. All things are possible. I can handle it all, but the real question Jesus asks is this. Do you believe? And the father says, "I, I do believe, sort of. In fact, this is what he says. He says, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. I do believe. Help me overcome 
my unbelief. He's saying this, yeah, there was a time when I really believed, but what you don't understand is that my son has been hurting for a long, long time, and I've been crying out to you. I've prayed. I've fasted. I've went and saw other holy people, but nothing happened, and I went and I took them to doctors, and I did everything you said I should do, but nothing worked. And so right now, my faith is just at this low point right now. I do believe Help my unbelief. See, this man was in a season of doubt. But I think there was a purpose behind it. I think God let him get to that place of doubt so that he could say, look, now I'm going to do something that you're never going to believe. You wouldn't believe it even if I told you. Something so amazing that you're never going to doubt this way again. I know that your situation with your son is hard but you would have never gotten to this point of having deeper faith unless I would have taken you through this season of doubt. That's what doubt is. Doubt are like those antibodies that build the the immune system of our faith when we invite God into it. This is exactly what Habakkuk was going through. And you see both his faith and you see his questions at the same time. He says, you are sovereign. You are my God. You are holy. God, you won't let us die. And then he turns around to the next verse and he says, why do then you look upon the, the wicked, the treacherous with favor? Why are you silent? He's saying, God, I believe, but I don't understand. I believe, help my unbelief. And some of you might be in the middle of chapter one in Habakkuk right now, the wandering, the questions. You're wondering what God is up to. I've got bad news for you because chapter two is followed up by waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. But then in chapter three, if you stick with God, if you refuse to let go, you come to this point that no matter what happens around you, regardless of the circumstances, you, you begin to see, you begin to worship God, not because of what you see right in front of you, but because of the character of who he is. The lesson of faith that we learn when we look at Habakkuk is that when you can't see the hands of God, you learn to trust his heart. When you can't see and understand why he does something, you say, but I know who he is. I know my redeemer lives. I can look back at my life and see his faithfulness. I believe he will be faithful in the future as well. When you can't see his hands, you trust his heart. So what do you do when you're in chapter one? You hang on to God with all your might. You never let go. No matter what's going on around you, you can say, God, I don't understand but I'm not letting go, I'm not letting go. I don't like what you're taking me through, I may not even like how you're doing it, but God, I'm not letting go because I know that even when things get worse, that you're never gonna leave me and that you're not letting me go. Spend some moments here in prayer, let's together with your eyes closed. Let's pray together. God, I, I wanna pray specifically for those people here this weekend and they find themselves in chapter one. And they're asking those hard questions. God, I pray that you would help them, that you would give them the faith to continue on, to hold hard and fast to you, to continue to trust in you for who you are. God, I pray for those people that are in, season, in chapter one, the seasons of difficulty, of doubt, 
God, that sometime soon that they would turn the page and find you and your answers and your response and they'd be found in you. God, that their faith would be stirred to a much deeper level. God, I pray that would be true for me. God, I pray that would be true for us as a church body as we wait on you and we call upon you. God, that we would experience your character and your grace in deeper and profound ways. God, because there are those things that you could fix right away. But it's in the journey that you show yourself faithful and true and we get to learn about you in deeper and more profound ways. And maybe here this weekend for those folks that are in the room and they may not be real sure where their relationship is with God. They're not sure what eternity looks like for them. Their perspective is only this world and this life. God, draw them to yourself. God, I pray that they would call on you. Your word says that when we call on the name of the Lord, we will be saved. God, I pray that that would be true for those folks. God, would you speak your care and your love and your compassion for them. God, would your kindness lead them to repentance, to call on you. God, thank you that you're faithful. God, stir in us faithfulness towards you. God, to know that your promises are true and steadfast. Great is your faithfulness, God. We're in your hands. We love you, God. We praise you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.